1: So where to start?
0: This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on
2: WTDR. How do you
0: like that? The fault, dear
1: Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Correct, correct, correct. Good luck. We care about your world. Stay tuned.
0: My guest is Gary Miller. He's a writer, educator, editor and he's a documentary film scriptwriter and the author of the short story collection Museum of the Americas. And he's out with a new book titled There's No Way to Do It Wrong, How to Get Young Learners to Take Risks, Tell Stories, Share Opinions, and Fall in Love with Writing, which is a short to the point book on the seven minute writer approach to teaching young people and all people about not falling into the old pitfalls that many of us fell into in school which may have turned us off to writing perhaps forever so gary welcome back to the magical mystery tour
1: thanks for having me back i'm always glad to spend some time with you on the show so nice to talk to you
0: yeah well i've always had fun having you on the show i always enjoy talking with you and I just see this new book of yours as an excuse to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So this book is really about this seven-minute approach to writing and how it really sidesteps the various pitfalls to getting young people to write and to enjoy writing and to want to write. So where did this seven-minute writing or writer approach come from
1: and tell us about it. Sure. Um, You know, the seven-minute approach started probably 10 years ago. My partner, Deb Fleischman, and I decided to start a little writing workshop for young people, you know, kind of middle school, high school age. And we were worried, you know, because so many kids see writing as a chore. We thought, well, you know, can we give them longer assignments? Can we you know, how do we do it? Do we give them an assignment, have them bring it back next week? And we decided, no, that, you know, that would be a recipe for them never doing it. And I don't know, we, we're batting things back and forth. And Deb said, let's just give them really short writing prompts and say, go, go right now. We're going to write right in the group. And that way, you know, we kind of talked about it. They don't have a They don't have a chance to think I'm a terrible writer. They don't have a chance to think I can't do it. You know, that, that inner critic of theirs doesn't have a chance to get on their shoulder. They don't have time to, you know, say, oh, I'll just put it off. And so we we tried it out, and we found out it was just incredible. Like, what happened when we, we just gave, you know, a little short prompt and said, you know, you have seven minutes, ready, go. Later on, I was working with Bess O'Brien, and I was invited, and she had a great film out about prescription opiate addiction in Vermont called The Hungry Heart, and she asked me to participate in a workshop with folks in recovery, and many of them had done poorly in school or didn't like school, and many, many of them did not like writing, did not consider themselves writers, were intimidated by writing. I thought, oh, let's, you know, we'll just try this approach, too, with them. And we added something called, there's no way to do it wrong. So we really don't care about, you know, grammar or punctuation or spelling or any of that. We don't care what you write about. We don't care about any of that. You know, we just want you to write. And what happened was just completely stunning. All these people who had, who had you know, hated writing ever since they were in school suddenly found themselves you know writing and enjoying it. And so we went on to form Writers for Recovery and we've been doing that for about 6 or 7 years. And at the same time we've been I've been doing intermittent work with young people and just realizing how powerful this form is. Um so that's kind of a long answer to a short question, but that's kind of how we got there.
0: I like long answers, so feel free
1: to ramble. <laughs> to I'll ramble.
0: Yeah. Feel free to ramble as much as you're inspired to. Okay. So you went to school like most of us, I imagine. I did. Do you remember what it was like learning to write, you know, being in English class and and going through all, all the usual approaches to teaching, to learning, or that whole teacher, student, writing, English, nightmare, dynamic. I say nightmare because almost everybody I knew in school growing up hated English class. And I hated English class up until my last two years of high school because I had a a really wonderful teacher. And he made the class a lot of fun. And he was the only person whoever made English really fun for me. And so I deliberately took these classes that I normally never would have voluntarily taken, things like expository writing and legal and technical writing, just because he was teaching it. So my question for you is, and you're also a teacher, you teach in school, or you have taught in school, I imagine, what does our education system do wrong? What do we do wrong in our schools when we're teaching kids to okay, write? Okay,
1: that, that's a really huge question. The first thing I wanna say is, I'm not here to like trash talk and diss teachers. Like the fact is that right now, teachers with this pandemic are doing some of the hardest work out there and they all, they all deserve kudos for it. Also, I went to school a long time ago and a lot has changed since then but i feel like what hasn't changed is this real hardcore emphasis on standards and standardized testing and that drives a lot of a lot of stuff and maybe we can talk a little more about that later cuz i just want to answer your question you know when when i was in school and it was a long time ago i had a great teacher in like 5th grade and back then it was very kind of regimented toward, you know, fill in the blanks and punctuate the sentence. And I'm, I'm glad that I learned that stuff. But she made it fun. She made it like a game, you know. She made it like play. And I really appreciate that. And that the flip side of this story is the first time I ever got a chance to take a course in quote-unquote creative writing, this was in high school, And I was so excited because I'd been, you know, writing and experimenting a little bit on my own, you know, and I had all these ideas in my head and I went into the first class and the teacher said, you know, welcome to creative writing right now. You're going to write, you're going to look out the window and describe exactly what you see in 500 words if it's 499 words, you get an F. If it's 501 words, you get an F. And I thought, oh my God. And it was horrible. It was horrible. It was no, there was just no fun. Everything was stripped out of it. And so there is kind of a balance, you know, between what we know kids have to learn and the kind of play and creativity that makes kids love writing. And I just feel like Things are a little bit out of balance, maybe more than a little bit out of balance now. And that's why I've written this book, to try to maybe push back a little bit and bring the play and the fun and the creativity into writing that is maybe in some cases missing.
0: Well, it seems like you've pushed back a lot because you're essentially doing almost the opposite, at least the opposite of what you described.
1: Yeah, and you know a big a big part of this, and I don't know if you were going to get to that, but I, I've been for over twenty five years a curriculum writer, and I've worked for these big big and small companies. You know, the biggest curriculum developers in the world, and small little curriculum companies too. And a lot of the writing that I've done is English language arts, and I've seen that you know what what happens in the creation of these textbooks and these you know, supplemental materials is that there's a group of really smart people, writers, editors, graphic artists, education, you know, kind of scientists who really want the best for kids and what's the best for kids. And standing in their way is a political and corporate entity that wants to make money by producing curriculum the cheapest way they can, and then adhere to these standards of education that, to me, have just become way too all-controlling. And when I was working in film was when standardized testing first became a big deal in Massachusetts, and they were one of the first states to institute, I believe it was, a standardized requirement for graduation from high school. And we did two documentaries. We followed kids over two years of school in Boston high schools, you know, to see how they did under this new um, regimen. But what was interesting to me was that every person, every kind of, you know, governmental person or academic person who supported testing, you know, explained that there was only one reason for doing this. They wanted to identify the schools that needed Support so they could provide more support to them. And first of all, at the time, I think if you asked a teacher or anyone involved in education in Massachusetts, they could point to exactly which schools need the most support. So they didn't need to test to find that out. In the second place, what's happened since is that A, it's become a a way to mete out punishment in a lot of cases. If your school doesn't make it, actually funds will be withdrawn or your administrators will be under pressure and it's all a negative thing. And B, most of these schools that really needed resources haven't gotten the resources they need yet. And yet the testing continues and it's doubled down and tripled down and more and more tests every year. And so that all drives this curriculum. And so you end up with these very... Standard. They're very standardized. And on the other side is a, is a political system where they're saying, you know, you can't talk about certain things. You know, a lot of this comes from, you know, kind of the religious right. You can't talk about this and that. And there's a big, long list of ridiculous things you can't talk about. And then there can't be conflict because that might be uncomfortable or there can't be even a small amount of violence because that, you know. And so all these things that make writing interesting are all tossed aside and what you end up with a lot of times is this bland, corporatized soup that no kid would be interested in. And yet, on the teaching side of it, it's the same thing. There's a huge number of incredibly creative, incredibly wonderful, incredibly dedicated and hardworking teachers, and they're fighting against the same thing to try to make sure that their kids learn to love things like writing and math and science, but their backs are against the wall in a lot of cases with all the standards and all that. So
0: So they're kind of stuck in this system.
1: They are. They are, you know, they have to spend so much of their time teaching to a test and so much of their time, frankly, in testing that takes away from their teaching time. So, you know, there's really so little room in a lot of cases for really creative, cool stuff. That's one of the reasons that seven minutes, I think, works. You know, if you can take seven minutes out of your day and give kids a really great, really cool writing prompt and just let them go, you can see amazing results. And I feel like in order for kids to be good writers and obey all the kind of traffic rules that we have and grammar and all that, they have to love to write first. If they get turned off to writing right away, I don't see how you get around that and get them to become effective communicators, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: And I think teachers burn out a lot and experience a lot of despair being stuck in the system where they're actually not, allowed or they're not given the space to really engage their students in the kind of work that they that they love and that they really want to share with with the kids
1: yeah and again I don't want to be I don't want to be finger pointing here you know it varies by school it varies by classroom you know I, I just want to emphasize that, you know, there are a bunch of really good, really creative people. Administrators, too. School administrators. They all want... that. You know, I don't think anybody wants what's bad for kids. Everybody wants what's good for kids and for kids to succeed, but...
0: Everybody just has a different idea of what that is.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right.
0: So, let's get back to the book and what makes some of the other aspects of what makes this seven-minute writing approach work and so effective and actually inspire kids and excite them about
1: writing? Yeah, I mean, one thing is, you know, I'm I'm here talking about rules, but I do have, you know, a couple of rules that, that go along with this, you know. One is there's no way to do it wrong, and another one, and this is huge, is positive feedback only. Right. So I went to college and I went to grad school, in fact, to be a a fiction writer, you know, to get an MFA in fiction writing. And so I have been through a level of really brutal writing workshops, you know, where you come into the room with your story and, you know, you're not, you're silent. You're not allowed to comment. And you listen as, you know, six or eight or ten people tear your story to shreds for an hour, and kind of at the end, you have to say thank you. Um, And that can be a really hard thing. But that, we're kind of taught that, you know, this way that we learn to write, we send in a paper, and we come back, and it's got red ink on it, or whatever color, you know, whatever. But there are, you know, I mean, I'm not saying there are no comments about what we did right, but... The real point is, you know, this is, this is what you messed up and you need to fix it for the next round or the next piece or whatever. And I understand why that happens, but I honestly think if we just allow a little bit of space for a time for kids when the only thing you can say about it is what they did right, the power of that is incredible. And I've seen it happen particularly in my in my work with people in recovery these people who haven't liked writing haven't gotten a real education don't like school and when i get them i would get them in a 10 week workshop and over the course of 10 weeks if you just keep telling them what they do right their writing improves phenomenally it's amazing and they pick it up from each other to say you know you're in my group tonio you're in a workshop a 7 minute workshop and you write a great description, uh, I say, hey, wow, that, that description was amazing. It's, it's not just what you can see with your eyes. It's what you can hear. It's what you can see, in, you know, Tonio included, taste and touch and smell and all of that in there. And you know what? Y'all can do that, too. The rest of you can do that, too. And you see next time somebody else in the class adds a little description that they didn't have before. So you're actually, it's actually a great way to learn, but you're just learning from each other by stealing strength from each other. So that is, to me, a really critical part of this approach, is that for just this one time, that's all I'm asking, seven minutes and a little talk afterward, everything we're gonna say about this story wow, that story, that one line really got me, you know, or that, that description of the, you know, the guy with the dog, that was hilarious. Or, you know, man, you you really, um, you made me feel sad, and that's a sad story, and you did it. You got, you got to my emotion. Or, that was a great sentence. Or, you know, I've never heard uh, a car described that way before, and that is awesome. Or just, wow, it's amazing how much you wrote in seven minutes. Or it's amazing that even though you only wrote a little short piece, it's got power, and there's something to learn from that. So there's not, a, there's not a piece of writing that a kid can produce to me that you can't say something good about. And the power of saying that, particularly for kids who've had bad experiences or don't have a high confidence level when it comes to writing, the value of that, and I'm not saying that it doesn't get done in the classroom because it does. But what I'm saying is take seven minutes and really get your head into we're only going to focus on what works.
0: I love, I, I, I totally, totally love that. And it would be so wonderful if we use that approach to everything in our lives. And my experience with our culture is that almost the opposite is what what we actually do in the world in general like the way parents relate to their kids they're almost always pointing out their failures and the things that they you know their complaints and punishment and and of course there's some praise and there's positive stuff but but the emphasis in our culture seems to be focusing on the negative stuff because they're afraid That if they don't do that, that it will continue when, as you're describing, the opposite approach is so much more effective.
1: Yeah, and you know, Tonio, we also live in a celebrity culture, a celebrity-driven culture, where so many of the faces that appear and the stories that appear in front of us every day are about the people who are achieving at the highest possible level and I wish I could remember the person who said this it was a it was a rock musician wasn't it may have been someone from the Foo Fighters who said the problem with us now is that we live in an American idol culture where it's all about you come on this TV show out of nowhere and you're either perfect or we mock you and we make fun of you. And the real story of being a musician is that you start out in garage and you suck, and then you get better. And that, to me, was such a profound and, you know, it's an obvious statement, but, you know, we really do live in in this world where it's all about being the best. You know, that's who gets the attention. And I tell kids... If you write for seven minutes, you have every right to call yourself a writer. You can say, I'm a writer now, because you are one, because you've written. You don't need a certificate. You don't need anyone's approval to be a writer. You don't need an MFA or anything like that. What do you need is something to write with and something to write on and effort, and you can call yourself a writer. And so yeah, I just I just feel like let's meet students where they're at, let's meet young learners where they're at, and celebrate what they can do, and I am convinced that when we do that, you will see them get better.
0: So you write that in this, there's no way to do it wrong approach, that students always succeed, or you also say, they fail fast. Could you talk about that and what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, sure. Fail fast is, I first heard it in the world of software development, which I i do a lot of kind of copywriting for, you know, corporate stuff, copywriting work. And so I'm involved kind of in that world, you know, in my day job. And the idea is that, you know, you don't try to build something to perfection and invest a huge amount of time and effort into building that and then see it fail. You build a prototype and you test it and it fails. And then you go, oh, it failed. I learned something from that. I'm gonna build a second prototype. And it's considered in software to be a faster way to getting where you want to go. And so I feel like we're applying this here in that another reason for seven minutes is no one can be perfect in seven minutes. And I tell people that. Everybody understands that it's not going to be perfect, that it's going to fall short of perfection. And so it takes the risk out of it. There's no risk. You're not going to be graded on this. No one's going to tell you anything you did wrong. And the idea is make mistakes. Mess around. Be creative. Don't care if a sentence doesn't work. Don't care if a plot doesn't work or if if it's not funny or whatever. Don't worry about that. Just learn by doing it. Learn, you know, think think of how, like, I used to think it was weird I would see skateboarders and how most often they don't really do anything very spectacular, particularly beginners. But to them, what they're achieving is tremendous they're learning how to you know get the nose of the board up off the ground first without falling or with falling you know and how that all happens is just do it again do it again do it again do it again and another thing that makes seven minutes really nice is that if you're only taking that much time then there's always time to do a seven minute ride. Right. and you can get into rhythm practice 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 and build habits, and habits are what create improvement, and so it can work that way.
0: And it sounds like using the seven-minute approach, you can learn things very, very quickly.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and in this book, I do include some information about, you know, how you write dialogue or how first sentences work or how you write a scene, just little basic things because I also feel like my experience in learning how to write in school and my experience in learning how to write in graduate school like in, in I mean by school, K twelve, kindergarten through twelve, and my and even in college and my experience in learning how to write in graduate school and as a professional freelance writer and a professional editor when I worked in house at a publishing company are two different things and it's hard to describe and I, I was tried to be thoughtful about it, doing it in the book. But I want to include some of the ways in which writers look at writing and consider writing and some of the tricks they use. So there's some nice little stuff in here, particularly for kids who, you know, maybe try a seven-minute write, or maybe they're already writing on their own, and you want to be able to clue them in. Hey, here's a really um, cool idea about how dialogue works, or here's a really cool idea, you know, a scene is kind of the cellular component of a story or a novel and so in order to write a story you have to be able to write a scene so here's how a scene works you know just little things like that it may be a a little more advanced but I I just wanted to include some of that stuff in here because I feel strongly about it and I've had really um, great teachers I've been lucky to have really great teachers so I thought I'd pass some of that along and you say in the
0: book that this book is full of the secrets of some of the greatest writers. What are some of those secrets and how did you discover them?
1: Well, I think the greatest secret of any writer is persistence. You know, you just have to keep doing it. It's like anything. It's like playing the guitar or using a camera to shoot photographs or painting or drawing or mathematics or computer programming or anything that is the number one thing that drives all writers. As far as, you know, quote unquote writing secrets, it's a little more complicated than I think I can get into in this, but you know, a great thing, and I learned this from a fantastic writer and teacher, just a miracle of a guy named Douglas Glover, who I was lucky to have as a teacher in graduate school. And he pointed out to me that, you know, dialogue is essentially two people in a room saying no to each other. And that's a weird statement, and this is way over the head of probably of where you're going to be with a lot of young students, but when people are agreeable in dialogue, when I when I walk into a room and say, hey, Tonio, how are you? And you say, I'm fine. I say, well, it's great to see you. Did you get those chores done that I asked you to do today? And you go, yes, I did. And I go, great, that's fantastic. That's what's called boring dialogue. But if you want to ramp that up, you try miscommunication. You try not paying attention. So, I come in and I say, "Hey, Tonio, silence. You're ignoring me. You're doing something different." Right away, can you feel the difference? There's tension.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I say, "How's your day?" If you say, "My day was fine," there's no tension. If you say, "You know, my day was terrible, man. This is the worst day," and let me tell you about the problem. Instantly, tension there. Right? If I say Did you get those chores done and you say yes? No tension in that at all. If I say, did you get those chores done and you say, why don't you think about doing those chores after the day I had? You know, (laughs) I mean, instantly there's, and it does not have to be anger where I say, you know, did you get those chores done? Wait, I, I didn't see a list of chores. Did you leave me chores? Like all these ways of saying no to each other and miscommunicating, or how you create tension and dialogue. So that's one of the little, you know, the tricks in there. Another one is a scene. A scene is a situation in which two people or more come into a meeting with each other with kind of one attitude about each other, and then by the end of their talking or engaging, that attitude has changed slightly. And I, I draw that out in the book, how that all happens. So those are just some of the things that are in this book that I call, you know, secrets of writing. And I I haven't really seen them ever in a K-12 curriculum. Here's another one. In K-12, I've seen a lot of this thing that gets repeated. A story is character, conflict, resolution. And when kids hear that, they most often think, conflict, I need some guns, I need some fighting, I need some yelling. You know, and so they produce stories that are like that, which are valid to the form, but aren't as interesting. But if you tell kids a story is about a person with a desire who wants something really badly, but obstacles stand in the way and you reform it and they move through obstacles. They encounter obstacles, but no matter what, they don't give up. Kids go, oh, because that's a way better definition of a story. And, you know, you see that, if you've probably seen that chart, or maybe you skipped class that day, you probably did knowing you, but, you know, the rising tension and the falling tension. Like, what does that really mean in real terms? like And so I include some of that in the book, just because I think kids ought to, you know, and maybe maybe they have been taught that, but a lot of times they haven't. and I just want them to know that.
0: I certainly didn't learn any of that in school.
1: Yeah. I think you mentioned earlier, you know, that you said something like, oh, you've taught. I've never been a certified teacher. I've never worked in a classroom day to day. I've taught and teach workshops with young people. I teach workshops with people in recovery. I was a substitute teacher. That was a nightmare. Don't ever do it if you're listening. No, I'm, cu- I'm kidding. Probably some people can do it. I was terrible. So I haven't had that experience. But, you know, some teachers do include that kind of thing.
0: So essentially, you, other than your substitute teaching with your workshop teaching, you weren't constrained to, to an exterior system.
1: No, I wasn't. And I have to say, I understand these constraints. And I'll, I'll give you a great example of this. When we first started that, Deb and I first started, you know, the writing group for kids. The Write Mondays. We called it, yeah, we called it Write Mondays. And we decided there would be no constraints on that whatsoever. And so one of the first things we did, we had a a week where we taught about screenwriting. And we brought the kids in, and none of them had ever seen The Big Lebowski. They were older kids, you know, like middle, high school, whatever. They had never seen The Big Lebowski, the movie The Big Lebowski. And so we played the first two scenes of The Big Lebowski, and we said, okay, write the third scene. And you can do anything you want. There's no way to do it wrong. Just write it. And those kids were so psyched because they were in, you know, a writing classroom where they heard the F-bomb like every 30 seconds, you know. And they had total freedom to do that. And they wrote the most incredible scenes. And believe me, I understand if you teach in a public school, you probably can't do that. But, you know, Freedom is a great thing to give kids in writing. I wish you could do that in the public school. I understand that you can't, but there's all sorts of ways to give kids freedom. And that was a great example of giving kids freedom. And they loved it so much. And then we went on and we did radio production with them. And they made incredible. Oh, you, of course, I don't have to tell you that because you broadcast their radio programs on your show.
0: Yeah, we did it together.
1: And that was so cool. It was so cool. I enjoyed that And they had a great time. Yeah. I I feel so badly that because of all the constraints that we have in teaching now, that the teachers don't have more time to just lavish kids with these great projects and stuff. And I know projects are hard, too, if you're a teacher. But we ask teachers to do so, so, so much. I mean, I, I wish we could have, you know, smaller classrooms and, more time for teachers to really do more creative stuff. But again, another reason why I'm saying seven minutes, seven minutes can make a difference. And also I wanna say that there are a lot of parents right now who are home with their kids due to COVID or will be throughout the year. And this is great for parents and families too, and it can be really fun. And I also say one thing that's really cool, if you write with your students, or you're a parent and you write with your kids, and let them see that it was hard for you and challenging for you and that your piece wasn't perfect, too. And they'll go, oh, even, even grown-ups, you know, they can't achieve perfection in seven minutes. And mm-hmm. I think that's a cool thing, to show kids, and also show kids that you have a sense of humor, show kids that you can show emotion in your writing, or, or whatever you can show them. You know, I think it's fun to do it along with them, too. But yeah, definitely, definitely. A lot of parents I think looking for resources that they can use at home. You know, I'm I'm happy with this book and the way it came out and I've gotten some good early feedback and, you know, people are buying it and it feels fun. I feel like I'm doing something good, you know, I'm trying to do something good here. And I'm trying I'm thinking of that kid who feels like nobody recognizes that I can write or I feel like I can't write, I'm scared of writing, it's too intimidating for me, it's too hard, I want to do something for that kid because I think everybody can discover that writing can be fun. And maybe that's just like a pie-in-the-sky thing, but I don't think it is, honestly.
0: I don't think so. I, I wish I had been exposed to this when I was a kid. I wish I had a teacher who employed some of this, because I have to write at times, and I have a built-in kind of obstacle to writing. I have this, I guess, this old program that says, I'm not a writer, I don't know how to write, I can't write, I'm not a good writer, you know, something along those lines. And it kind of sabotages a lot of my writing, or at least it sabotages my attitude and enthusiasm about the writing that I do do and have to do, Yeah, and also what I I might like to do. You know, it might be a lot of fun to to actually, you know, be able to write in a way that's flowing and free and open and unconstrained and not plagued by self-doubt or other hindrances.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have a basketball court behind my house, as you know, and it's it's for the school next door, you know, and I go out and shoot around once in a while, and while I'm shooting, I'm not thinking, oh, my God, I'm so much worse than LeBron James. My God, my, my foul shot is terrible, you know. I'm just out there, like, throwing a ball at a hoop, and sometimes it goes in, I get psyched, and sometimes it doesn't, I don't really care. And, like, I wish... That we could lower the stakes at least for seven minutes, you know, or at least for a little bit of time for kids. Just lower the stakes. This is a risk-free venture here. This is play. When I was in track in high school, I was I was not a good track runner, but we did this thing called fartlek. Have you heard of that term, fartlek?
0: No, I I did it's, track I, it, also, but I've never yeah,
1: heard. Yeah, it it's that. a great it's a great term, especially if you have like elementary middle schools. you see the word fartlek? they're going to laugh and they're going to love that word they're going to use it a lot. It's a Swedish word it means speed play. And so the idea is that you would run, you know, we I was a distance runner, but distance runners would do fartlek which was short fast running that built up your endurance and your ability to obtain oxygen and function on a higher level at a longer distance. And so I think a lot about this book as speed play. You know, it's fast and it's fun. And that's what it needs to be for kids to learn how to love writing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and it completely lowers, if not eliminates, that quote-unquote American Idol bar.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I hate that thing. <laughs> I hate that thing. I play music, too, you know, and I'm not a great musician. But I get together once a week now with a couple of friends and we play music. And it's fun. It's fun. It's fun, and I mess up something and go, whoops. But that's all I really really think about it, you Um, know? And mm -hmm. most of the time, I'm just having fun.
0: Yeah, it's never too late to have a a good childhood again.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) I think a lot of us really need to take up that opportunity to redo things, to reopen those doors that have either been slammed shut in our face or that we slammed shut in our own face.
1: Yeah. So anyway, I should say something about who this book is for age-wise. I mean, it's it's probably, I think of it as like grades 5 to 8, probably, um, but it could stretch on either end. If you have kind of more precocious writers in grade 4 or 3, and you want to try it out, that's good. At the other end, if you have kids who have are kind of, you know, struggling with writing, need a little boost on the other side, 9, 10, whatever. But if this book continues to do as well as it's doing, I think I will be bringing out an upper level one. I got a email the other day from a person who taught English in college and said, you know, I love the ideas in the narrative section of this book, and I wish I would have had that chapter for my students while I was teaching college. And so I think I will be working soon on coming up with an older version of this. But I have to say, I published it myself, and the amount of work to just get it out there is really what I'm about right now. Trying to be on social media, trying to, you know, emails and contacts and all that kind of thing. And I also understand that teachers are really frighteningly busy right now, so I'm more or less backing off a little bit from direct contact with teachers But if you are a teacher, I hope you'll be hearing from me, particularly in Vermont. I want to get the word out, but also beyond. And I've already gotten, you know, teachers from California, New Jersey, Virginia, Maine, you know, all of New York, kind of getting orders from all over the place through the wonders of kind of Internet advertising. And that's been really fun for me.
0: So while we're here, Um, while we're here on this point, let people know how they can... Contact
1: you sure. for this. Um, yeah, my website is sevenminutewriter dot com. Seven as a numeral, numeral seven minutewriter com, and you can order books there. If you're local in the Vermont area, there's one bookstore in Montpelier. Bear Pond Books now has copies. I'm working to get out to more bookstores. I have to go through a certification process to get into a distributor, and I'm working on that. And you can also buy it at. Amazon.com, a.k.a. The Evil Empire. I'm not 100% thrilled with that option, although I have to say this book wouldn't be possible without Amazon because I also use their publishing arm to publish it, and it made it affordable for me to be able to do that. But if you can get it you know, locally, do that. But 7 minutewritercom I'll send you a copy with a little note in there encouraging you in a 7-minute-ish positive kind of way. And also, if there's anyone who hears this who's already got a book, or if you get one, I'd love to hear how you're doing. I'd love to see some of the writing your students are doing in seven minutes, you know? Send me an email. Say what's right about this book. Say what's not working about it. Send me some writing. I'd love to to get some student writing to look at. and Say, wow, you know, this process inspired a young person to write something really cool. I'd love to see that.
0: And I want to add that This book is a short 54 pages, and it's very, very much to the point. There's no fluff in it. I think it took me about two hours to read, and that's in my very slow reading style. So it's a small commitment to read and to work with and learn from, which I think will have a lot of appeal for people, particularly like teachers who are already swamped and overworked and overstressed.
1: Yeah, part of that is my experience in educational publishing where, you know, company A writes a 400-page book with 20 supplemental materials. Well, then company B, to stay ahead of them, has to write a 500-page book with 25 supplemental materials. And so teachers, and not all teachers buy, you know, curriculum at all. A lot of teachers make up their own curriculum, which I think is awesome, but it's a big-time commitment. And I just wanted to provide something that wasn't that gigantic monolith that you have to deal with. I just want something you can grab. You can keep it in your top desk drawer, carried in a bag, and you need something to do, you know, seven minutes and just go, okay. Or you want to give, you know, open up your writing class or you want a seven-minute write to start the day in your classroom. Boom, it's right there. It's compact. It's easy. And also one more thing is I'd love to come and lead a Zoom workshop with teachers in your school or with with students in your school. So if you're interested in that, and you get a copy of the book, and you think it looks kind of cool, contact me and we can make that happen.
0: That sounds great. Another thing that you have in the book that I really love, which I think is fabulous for getting the writing flowing and starting it, are what you call writing prompts. Writing prompts have been around for a long time, but could you talk about writing prompts, what they are, how you use them, and the different types of writing prompts? That yeah,
1: you sure. Um, you know, I look out in the world and, you know, there's all sorts of books of writing prompts. And I think a lot of them kind of fall short for me. And the main reason is that they're not positioned. And what I mean by that is a lot of prompts are right about a time when you felt overwhelmed or write about a trip you took or imagine you were a person playing on a sports team, or I don't know what. There are all these prompts, and they really require students to create an entire scenario. And also, those type of prompts have been around so long that kind of students know what you want. So they're trying to go for what you want. Write about what you did over the summer, write about you know a time you met a new friend. Everybody knows what those are supposed to be about but I like the idea of giving students a position prompt. And what that means is you're going to give a student a little bit of a place to stand to start with. You're going to start them out with a little bit of a boost. And I'll just give you an example from the book. You know, a non-position prompt might be, recall a time when something unexpected happened, write about what happened and organize the events in order, blah, blah, blah. A position prompt would be, let me tell you about the time my day did not turn out as planned. So you see the difference between those two? Already, we've given the students a little bit of a boost.
0: That's a huge boost to me.
1: I mean, yeah. that's
0: night and day difference.
1: Yeah. You could talk about a weather disaster that happened that you know about or talk about a big storm, let's say. But you could say instead, to give them a prompt, the supermarket had never flooded before. Now, to me, that second prompt already conjures an image that they can go off of, so they don't have to, in the moment, come up with that. That much, just that little boost. And if you look through the book, you'll see, I take a little chapter to explain about it, but it's the idea of just giving a little boost at the beginning that sets students off on the path, so they don't have to do it themselves. And I have found that the results are remarkably different and way better if you give them that little boost. Yes. Did I explain that okay? I mean, I always feel like yeah. this is the most subtle distinction and yeah. it's it's hard to explain, but...
0: I think the distinction is, is actually not subtle at all. For me, the position prompt is like a door swinging wide open. And the other prompt to me is more like a door that I have to open or even force open. I have to use effort to make it work and I'm already feeling resistance about dealing with it. Whereas the other one is almost propelling me through the door, through an open doorway. And another way of saying is, let me tell you about the time that we had this incredible storm up here. You know, it it just brings excitement into the narrative right off the bat.
1: Yeah, here maybe is another example we could talk about You know, we we want kids to express opinions. That's a big part of writing, you know, persuasive essay. And, you know, we often ask them, you know, take a position that's important to you and, and write about it. And there are different ways to say that, but all of them, I think, will have students struggling a little bit to come up. You know, you could say, talk about an issue that's important in your community and how you feel about it. Or you could give them this prompt. Here's the honest truth. To me... Subtle distinction, but big difference, because it immediately calls on students to say something true. And so I'm just trying with this idea of a position prompt, and I'm also building up as I do this. This is a learning for me. This whole book and this whole organizing my thoughts has been learning for me, too. And this whole idea of the position prompt is still in development, but I've seen it happen, and I'm convinced that it's different, and I'm convinced that it works.
0: Well. It already works for me. I mean, I find it totally engaging. So I can just imagine other people, especially young people and kids, finding the second approach far more exciting or interesting. Right. The position prompt is actually giving you help right from the beginning. It's it's actually taking the first step for you.
1: Right. And also what I found is, Despite the fact that that first step is taken, no one comes up with the same response, which is probably the coolest thing. You can have a whole room full of people writing from the same prompt and they'll all be different and they'll all be so interesting and great. And I love that. Whereas if you ask someone write about you know your summer vacation or some of these more standard prompts that I see, and I see them out there in books and I see them online, on Twitter, you know, whatever, writing prompts. They're all the same and they're just not inspiring to me.
0: Mm -hmm. And I love the prompt that you described earlier about having students see the first two scenes in The Big Lebowski and then having them write the third scene. To me, that type of a prompt is just, seems like so much fun.
1: That was such a great workshop. Those kids just were awesome and then, when it came time to read their scenes, they got dramatic. They got into it. you know they were laughing and shouting. It was just so cool, you know, and that's the kind of thing that can happen if you just let kids play a little bit with writing and you lower the stakes and The other thing I love to do is to put kids and all sorts of audiences in touch with real writers, with professional writers. Let them talk to writers. Let them ask writers questions. You know, do it on a Zoom. Do it in person. Because, you know, we live in the American Idol. And, you know, even before American Idol, you know, I used to think a writer was this kind of lofty person who was smarter than me and probably drove a Mercedes and lived in Greenwich Village and, you know, spoke three languages. And writers are ordinary people who happen to do the job or the vocation of writing. And it's great for young people to be in touch with writers for that reason, because then they can start to see I could do that. And don't tell me you can't make a living being a writer because I've done it for 30 years, so you're talking to someone who's just going to be utterly unconvinced no matter what you say. I met this guy a while back, and he actually said to me, oh, you're a writer? I can't believe... Someone would pay someone to do writing. That's like, gee, thank you, but yes, in fact, that happens every day. Every movie you see, every book you read, every newspaper, every blog post. I mean, a lot of writers, I guess, in social media don't get paid, which is a crime. That's the other thing. Never write for free. Never, (laughs) ever write for free unless it's just for fun. If someone wants you to write something for them, make them pay you. Harry's number one rule except for you should all use your skills at some point to volunteer and give back to your community, which I do. But in general, if you want me to write for you, you're going to have to pay me.
0: Yeah, writing is like, ironically, it's often the unseen underlying matrix of what we experience in the world.
1: It is. And this is an older reference. I guess I'm dating myself, but, you know, Clint Eastwood says, go ahead, punk, make my day. And everyone thinks, that's Clint Eastwood. Well, no, that's a person who wrote that amazing line. And yes, he did deliver it with panache, but that would not be such an icon of the film world if it weren't for someone writing that great line. And also, yes, uh, in fact, the United States Constitution was written. The Declaration of Independence was written. And every legal document you enter into was written. All the laws we have now were written. For better and worse, Every you know commercial you see, every ad you see, every interaction you have with media, so much of it was written, and writers are really unsung heroes, and I wish we could look at them more often like that.
0: My guest is Gary Miller. He's a writer, educator, and the author of the short story collection Museum of the Americas, and he's out with a new book titled There's no way to do it wrong. How to get young learners to take risks, tell stories, share opinions, and fall in love with writing. So you also talk about publishing students' writing. Talk about the value of that and how to go about doing that, particularly for teachers who, you know, have limited budgets, but also want want to stimulate the enthusiasm of their students.
1: Sure. You know, there is nothing that gets writers going more than seeing their work in print. I mean, it's true for me. It's a thrill. It's such a thrill to see your work in print. It's proof that you did something. You know, it's proof of your accomplishment. You know, a long time ago, when my daughter was young, I was volunteering at Rumney School in in Middlesex, Vermont. I don't even know how it got proposed, but we ended up doing a year-long magazine project, with students at the Romney School, 5th and 6th graders, and we would start in the fall and we would divide the students up into teams, the writing team, the graphic design team, and the marketing team. And we would pick a theme for the year that we were going to write about, and then students would go out into the community and do interviews. I came in with two other people and volunteered to work with the writers, then A graphic designer came in and worked with the designers and I think the teacher and some other people worked with marketing. So, And we were the only elementary school, I think, in the history of grants that the Adobe Corporation gave out. They gave us a free design license for graphic design software because they thought our project was so cool. And the marketing team would go out in the community and get ads and so the magazine paid for itself. And we published a yearly magazine called The Rumney View. And it was so awesome. And I learned from that, you know, how much people love seeing their work published. And that is still true. Now, if you're a teacher, it's much, much easier. You know, if you go to my website, 7 you'll see a kind of ordinary website. I think it gets the job done. It's kind of basic. But I made it myself in Squarespace. And it didn't take me a long time. And so there are options like that, like blogs, for instance, where a teacher can just, you know, effectively fill out an online form that will publish their students' work to the web. You think about back in the 90s and and maybe late 80s, they had zines, you know. They were just photocopied writing. People would type something up, print it out, photocopy it. And so I would encourage teachers who are working with the seven-minute writing prompts, and then there's no way to do it wrong kind of formula to consider publishing some of the things that come out of that. And that doesn't mean that you have to publish exactly what students wrote in seven minutes. You know, if if young people want to edit their work a little bit or change it or do whatever they want to spruce it up and get it out there or just put it out there, you know, just the way it came out of their mind and share it. You know, you can share it with the school community. You can share it with the international community and these online tools. What's the other one? I don't know, I use Squarespace, I, I prefer that one. Oh, there's Weebly is another one. But there are all these tools that are relatively inexpensive or maybe even free, and you, know, you can easily find, there's tutorials on how to use them. They're not hard, if you're a teacher Chances are your students probably already know how to use them because they're using them themselves or they're so digitally literate that they can make it happen. And it's just great to get, you know, these ideas out there and this work out there because it's even more positive reinforcement for the idea that writing has fun and that writing has value, not just to you, but to a broader community of people.
0: And there's actually, you know, for people who are interested in getting a good job and making money, There are just endless applications in the world for good writers.
1: Yeah, if you learn to do digital media, actually a really great school in Vermont Champlain College, they have amazing digital media programs. But the cool thing also is that you don't really have to go to college, I don't think. I mean, if you learn enough skills just working with digital media on your own and you really put your time in, you can get a good job and writers are desperately needed. That's the other thing is that good writers are desperately needed in this world now. And companies know it. And you know, the jobs are there. Can I tell you just for fun, some of the writing jobs that I've had?
0: Oh, I'd love to hear that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I have literally written tons of stuff for educational publishing. I've written stories about um, here's some people I've interviewed. I've interviewed kind of civil rights pioneers. I've interviewed literal rocket scientists, paleontologists, professional athletes, like all these people that I wrote about. I've written, um, if you ever see, I don't know if it's still, you use, still use the same label, but if you're in Vermont and you buy Leonardo's pizza sauce, I wrote that label. Awesome. At one point, I had a job where I literally wrote descriptive copy for these little boxes to put cremated ashes in for people and pets. I was paid actual money to write a description of an urn to put your guinea pig's ashes in after your guinea pig has been cremated. I got paid for that. I wrote documentary films about a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox, the ballerina for the Boston Ballet. I've written instructional materials for how to, you know, use products, how to buy products. I wrote wrote a long time. I wrote journalism articles about music for a Vermont newspaper called Seven Days where I interviewed musicians and wrote about, you know, their careers. I did that online as well. I'm writing about medical procedures now telling patient stories for a university hospital. I've written publicity materials for a device to help improve medical care in Africa by giving people access to an app with which they can diagnose illness in young children. I mean, I've written about hurricanes, fires, natural disasters, owls, cicadas, space travel, rivers, just everything. Everything, Tony. I've gotten paid for it. How do you get these jobs?
0: I'm sure people uh, would love to, to know how you get your foot in the door.
1: This but- is the hard thing. Every once in a while I get an email from someone who says, hey, I'm really trying to you know, get a gig as a writer, and how do I do that? I don't have the best advice because I started actually at an educational publishing company in Boston, I was living in Boston, and I had a roommate who was working at a publishing house in Boston, and he came home one day and said, hey, we need a photo researcher at work. Why don't you apply for the job? And my response was, what is a photo researcher? And the answer was that I would find all the photos that were needed to go into a social studies book. And so... I would get a list. You know, you need a photo of, you know, a painting of the Little Bighorn, or you need a photo of a painting of the Mona Lisa, or you need a photo of, you know, the United States Congress, or you need a photo of a woman driving a car. And I would have to call around to these stock houses and museums and stuff and find that thing. But I wanted to be a writer. I'd already been writing little stories for kind of an alternative newspaper in Boston. And I kept saying, hey, I want to be an editor at this business, you know. I want to be an editor, and then I became an editorial assistant, which meant I did photocopying all day, every day, eight hours a day. I just photocopied and delivered stuff to the mail. And then someone in the company came to me, the head of graphic design, this wonderful lady named Ann Gorey Goodman, and she said, you know, you're really funny. Can you write a satirical song for an office party? So I wrote a satirical song to the tune of some popular song, and she said, You know, you really can write. I'm going to yell at them until they give you a job as an editor. And that's what happened. I became an editor, and I thought I was a really good writer, and I learned that I wasn't. And I had very patient copy editors and proofreaders working above me who really coached me, and I owe them a lot. And I worked at that company for a few years writing, you know, social studies texts and English texts and math texts. They would only let me do math up to second grade, which is probably a good idea. And then the company changed hands. I left and went out on my own and I immediately landed a freelance job working for PBS, the American Experience, writing big websites online. But the thing is, when I worked at this publishing house over the years that I worked there, literally hundreds of people passed through and I developed all these relationships. And so when I went out as a freelancer, so many people knew me and I just started getting calls. And that is pretty much how my career has gone ever since. It's all word of mouth and connection, which I know is a terrible answer for people who are looking to forge a career as a writer. But if you are looking to do that, I would encourage you to look at you know small newspapers, at online magazines. The first thing you need is proof that you can write, and the only way you can get that is to publish something with an actual journal or magazine or online source, and then the hard thing is where you need to say, okay, I can do this now, you need to pay me. And that can be a really hard thing to negotiate, but I encourage all writers in the world who are writing for anyone who has money, you should consider that no company will say to their company attorney, oh yeah, we're just going to let you do this free for a while, until you show us you can do it. No one would say to their accountants, oh yeah, we're going to let you just do accounting for a while for free. So when you're a writer and someone asks you to do writing, make sure they pay you. And the other thing is do good work. And also the number one thing I think has gotten me work. Like I'm a good writer. I know what I'm doing. I'm very experienced, but I play nice with other people. I'm a team player. I don't, throw my ego into a job because so often my work gets changed, edited, whatever. I just live with that. It's part of the process, and I treat my coworkers with respect, and I develop really great, amazing relationships with people, and because of that, they enjoy working with me. I enjoy working with them, and when they think of who they need as a writer, they think of me, and that's a really great tip for someone who wants to become a writer just do what you say you're going to do be honest about what you can't do or if you need help ask questions and learn ask a lot of questions as writing is a skill and you get better at it by doing it but also there's always going to be writers who are better than you who you can ask and they'll be glad to tell you because i know because i am one Mm
0: -hmm. that's great advice
1: so let me know when you get your first job, Tony, you know, your first writing gig. And um, and I get 10% because I gave you the advice.
0: Hey, in the meantime, can I borrow five bucks?
1: Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I'll leave it out on the porch, but it's windy today. So if it's not there when you get here, it probably just blew away. Okay.
0: So is there anything else that you would like to talk about?
1: Um. Yeah. I think we've covered so much today. I don't know. I just want to say, you know, total respect to all the teachers out there that are doing a job in this pandemic and, you know, really appreciate what you're doing. I live right next to the school. I see teachers out on the playground every day. I know they've got so much going on in their minds, and yet they're just trying to make a good experience for their students. I know they're under a lot of stress.
0: And they're even risking their lives.
1: They're risking their lives. So that's my last message, just total props to every teacher out there who's doing the thing. Respect is what I have for you because I really appreciate what you're doing to make people's lives better and our culture better and our society better, and God knows we need you all.
0: Mm -hmm. So my guest has been Gary Miller. He's a writer, editor, and teacher, a documentary film script writer, and the author of the short story collection Museum of the Americas. And his new book that we've been talking about is There's No Way to Do It Wrong, How to Get Young Learners to Take Risks, Tell Stories, Share Opinions, and Fall in Love with Writing.
1: Thank you so much, Tonio, for having me on the show. And I hope I'll be able to come back and talk about something, not me. Not just you? talk about music or oh, talk yeah. about books. Yeah. Or
0: Oh, I'm sure we will.
1: I'm yeah. sure we will.
0: So, yeah, whenever you, you have some hairbrained idea let me know.
1: You know me. I'm the <laughs> king of harebrained ideas.
0: <laughs> and you know me. I'm all ears for hairbrained right. ideas. So thank you so much. This has been fun as usual.
1: Okay, thanks, Tony. You'll take care. You
0: too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. We'll end the show with music from an amazing guitarist I just discovered. She's been around for years, but she's a bit obscure. This is Kaki King.
3: I was thinking about my place in the universe and about my first thought about what infinity might mean when I was a child. And um, I thought that if infinity, if time could reach forwards and backwards infinitely, doesn't that mean that, that every point in time is really infinitely small and therefore somewhat meaningless? So we don't really have a place in the universe as far as on a timeline, but nothing else does either. And so therefore, every moment really is the most important moment that's ever happened including this moment right now. And so therefore, this music you're about to hear is maybe the most important music you'll ever hear in your life. For those of you who I'll be fortunate enough to meet afterwards, you could please refrain from saying, oh my God, you're so much shorter in real life. Because it's, it's like the stage is an optical illusion for some reason. Somewhat like the curving of the universe. I don't know what it is. I get asked in interviews a lot. My God, your, your guitars are so gigantic. You must get them custom made special humongous guitars. very much
0: that's khaki king and thank you so much for listening and until next time take good care of yourselves and each other